This morning we're talking about the subject of anger. And I want to begin by talking about anger in my own life. Eight or nine years ago, I had, as I look back on it, what was a crisis with anger. It wasn't a a one-time event where I exploded. I had had a couple of those. Rather, it was a period of a couple of years where I was ticked off. I was frustrated by what was going on at home. I wasn't mad that my first wife, Carol, had died after 27 years of marriage. That was in God's hands. God gave me through a variety of experiences with him leading up to and after the death of Carol, a deep confidence that He was in control, he was good, and he was in the process of redeeming. So I wasn't mad about that. What I was so upset about is that after Rhonda and I got remarried, after we married, step-family life was so incredibly hard. Now, it wasn't Rhonda's fault, it wasn't the kids' fault, it wasn't my fault for that matter. It's an inherent in step-family, blended family life. There's this reality, uh, this weakness, this system's weakness or, or problem, I would call it. And it's this, seven out of ten times, blood is thicker than marriage. So if Rhonda, for example, had a problem with my parenting or vice versa, or one of our kids had a problem with uh, one of their uh, step-parents, the family ties, the biological ties, the blood ties, seven out of ten times trumped the marriage ties. What I'm trying to tell you, it didn't make for a great marriage. So, for example, if one of my kids had a problem with Rhonda, was frustrated with Rhonda, or or vice versa, what in the world was I supposed to do? Now, I understand the Bible teaches us that marriage is primary. That's a primary social bond on earth. But my kids had just lost their mother. And was I to abandon them in their frustration? That tension, that systems dynamic, if you will, made me so very angry. And I took it out on Rhonda, and I took it out on the kids. Now, I do not know what pushes your anger button. I don't know if you've been the object of anger, the object of anger for years, or you're the one that gets angry. But I do know that anger is always destructive. And like a shark, it's looming just under the surface in all of our lives. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to heal our anger. To give us the ability to to lay it down. Not perfectly, but significantly. Because Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is that Jesus alone can overcome, can cleanse our hearts. 
And so today we want to look at what Jesus has to say about this. And I just want to continue the story and tell you, I've experienced this redemption personally, uh, over and over, actually repeatedly in my life. But a couple of years after we were married and were processing stuff, uh, God began to show me in, in a variety of ways, different things I was reading, different things Rhonda and I were talking about, the counseling we re- were receiving, that my fundamental problem wasn't the fact that I was now in a step family. My fundamental problem was that I was angry. And it wasn't it, it was me. The dominant idiom, metaphor for anger in the Bible is fire. In other words, we don't just get angry, we burn with anger. And I was burning uh, with anger. And God stepped in, Jesus stepped in. And I confessed it, I named it, Rhonda and I talked about it all the time. Her anger, my anger, the anger at the systems, the inappropriate ways that I had been handling that. And slowly but surely, God began to build an evidence that God has a sense of humor. A couple years into this, we ended up on Stanley Family Life Ministries National Advisory Board for step families. <laughs> we told our story multiple times on national radio. Uh, we spoke about it. And I tell you this because God wants to do the same thing in your life. Jesus Christ came to heal your anger. So we're going to continue this morning look at the, looking at the most famous speech in all the entirety of human history. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I want to invite you to turn on your Bibles, grab your Bibles, there's Bibles in in front of you, and let's go to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to look at what our Lord himself says about overcoming anger. So we'll pick it up in verse 17. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Or actually, I will read it. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus is here talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the teachers of the law were the scribes, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven." You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. 
Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister is something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar first. Now notice first, not second, but first. Go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You may be seated. Now, as others have done before me, I want to move through this passage backwards. I want to go to the end and then come all the way back to the beginning. And I want to begin at the end by looking at what Jesus tells us to do. He tells us, do not be angry. He tells us anger is a form of murder. That's verses 21 through 26, those three paragraphs. Here also Jesus tells us we can't do this. We can't overcome our anger on our own. That's verses 18, 19, and 20. I'm going to focus on verse 20 when we get there. Then Jesus tells us at the very beginning in verse 17, we can do this through him. We can only do this through Jesus. So if you have your booklets, um, the place to start would be on page 20. If you have our app, or you want to get our app, uh, download the Wheaton Bible Church app, uh, go on the upper left to menu, uh, click on notes, and you're there. So let's begin at the end with what Jesus commands. Now what I want you to see is the contrast between verse 21 and verse 22. We'll see this played out over and over in chapter 5. Jesus begins by saying, you heard it was said. That's verse 21. Then we get to verse 22. He says, but I say to you. Now what I want you to understand is Jesus is not contrasting the Old Testament with the New Testament. But he's contrasting how the hypocritical, self-righteous, Jewish religious leaders interpreted the Old Testament with what the Old Testament really meant and what Jesus is revealing, what I say to you. You shall not murder is the sixth of the Ten Commandments. And the scribes and the Pharisees said it only refers to the external act of murder. They defined it narrowly. And Jesus says, no way. Do not murder. Murder also encompasses the internal, internal emotion of anger. And you say, now hold, hold on a second. God got angry in the Old Testament with Israel's unbelief. Jesus in the Gospels got angry with the money changers and threw them out of the temple. And you're absolutely right. That's good, what we call righteous anger. It's the anger we should all feel at sin, injustice, and hate. I mean, you can't love your son without being angry at his addiction. L uh, anger in its purest form 
is your response when the object of your love is threatened. And that's good anger, that's healthy anger, that's righteous anger, if you will. But Jesus here isn't talking about that kind of anger. He's not talking about healthy anger. He's talking about unhealthy, sinful anger uh, because our loves are distorted. And distorted loves creates distorted anger. So, for example, today we get angry because a goal gets blocked. You have this goal, you've got to be at this meeting on time, you're in tons of traffic, and there's smoke coming out of your ears. And I've been there with you, man. Or um, you're not getting your way. You're not getting your way in the situation at work or uh, maybe in a family situation, uh, maybe, maybe in a, a marriage situation, and you're starting to fume. Or you've been snubbed. You've been passed over. You've been neglected. Maybe that's a situation at school. And some of your friends have just cut you off and they're ignoring you. you you've been snubbed and there's something inside of you that says, I'll get even. They've hurt me, so I'm going to hurt them. And Jesus says that anger is murder. Because anger always, unhealthy, sinful anger always seeks vengeance. I mean, think about road rage. Or a mom or dad yelling at a three-year-old. Or are you taking off somebody's head with your words or stabbing somebody in their back when they're not present? Anger is the most destructive of all the emotions. Because if you hold on to it, it's like uh, repeatedly drinking poison while you're hoping the other person will die. And it just corrodes us. But what's so fascinating here is Jesus goes further. Look at verse 22. In verse 22, he tells us that anger is saying raka. The word means empty, nothing. Uh, uh, anger is saying you fool. That's the word we get our English word moron from. Now the last time I preached this, I, I, I missed this point. And what I missed is that Jesus isn't primarily focusing on the words we speak, but our attitudes behind these words. Raka, you fool, points to viewing people as losers, as nobodies, as zeros. It points to this disposition in our hearts of viewing people with contempt, disdain, as inferiors. Jesus got angry with people. But he never dismissed people. He loved them. He wanted the best for them. He valued them. Jesus never looked down at people. He never snubbed people. 
Uh, he, he never said, leave me alone, you're a bunch of fools, you're a bunch of idiots. There was no raka in Jesus. I mean, when he's dying on the cross, what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. There's no bitterness, there's no contempt, only love. So as strongly as words will allow him, when we come to the end of verse 22, uh, what does Jesus say? He says that if you have that kind of contempt in your heart, you may think you're a Christian, but you are in danger of hell. But he doesn't stop. There's more. Thou shalt not murder. Anger is a form of murder. It, it has to do with an attitude, the way we look at people, the way we uh, dismiss and look down our pointed noses at certain sections of humanity, certain sections of culture. But Jesus continues in these last two paragraphs, and he moves from the negative to the positive. Uh, do not murder means uh, do not get angry, but it also means be loving. Now, where in the world do we see this? Well, beginning in verse 23, in these two illustrations, what Jesus is telling us, if someone has something against you, whether they're a friend of yours or they're a foe of yours, an enemy of yours, then you need to stop what you're doing, you need to go and you need to seek reconciliation. As a matter of fact, seeking that reconciliation is more important than going to church. It's more important, now hear me, than reading your Bible. Because loving God and loving others are always two sides of the same coin. Now yes, you cannot, and I need to say this, you cannot control the outcome of reconciliation. It takes two parties to be reconciled. But Jesus says, regardless of whether you can control the outcomes or not, you must attempt. And that's a form of love. And that's part of this commandment, you shall not murder. As a matter of fact, to not seek reconciliation is a form of murder. Now let me make four quick applications here, uh, four thoughts. Anger isn't the opposite of love, hate is. And the ultimate form of hate is indifference. And so the, the question we ask is, do you really value all people? Do you treat all people? Ask yourself, do I treat all people with dignity, the dignity inherent in their cre uh, creation? Do I make all people feel valued? I mean, everyone around you. Second, uh, a second takeaway, a second application here is that anger isn't just... Uh, discourteous, it's hellish. And if your anger, if your anger doesn't bother you, you are in danger. Third, anger is always a heart problem before it's a behavior problem. 
And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's showing us the internal aspect of these commandments, what, what they mean for the inside, not to our hearts, not just our behavior. So for example, um, if you do go to a young boy who just hit a young girl on the playground at school and ask him, hey, what's going on? Uh, the likelihood of him talking about himself is probably pretty small. Instead, what, he, what he will do is point to something or someone outside of himself. When I realized I didn't have a stepfamily problem, that was just the nature of the beast. I had a rob problem. I had an anger problem. Things began to change. God opened my eyes. God began to step in and, and redeem that situation. Fourth, anger is an assault on God's rightful place. Every moment you get angry or you're bitter or you're mean or you're condemning, or you're harsh and you're critical is a personal salt on the sovereignty of God. It's a functional denial of the sovereignty of God. It's saying, my will, not your will, be done, and I'm going to continue to stew in these juices until my will is done. And friends, we do this all the time. Now let me go on. Jesus says, you shall not murder. Anger is a form of murder. It's how we view people and included is in that is the reality that we must love everyone. Now, the second thing in terms of how we're ordering this that, that Jesus says here is that you and I can't do this on our own. We can't overcome anger on our own. And that's the point of verses 18, 19, and 20. But I want to focus on, on verse 20. When Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and the scribes were the Old Testament experts, they were the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees were the Old Testament enforcers of the law, and, and Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses those two spiritually elite groups, everybody listening to Jesus speak these words would have been absolutely shocked. Because in spite of all the faults of the scribes and the Pharisees, everybody knew that no one was more zealous for God and his word. In a distorted, perverted way, I understand. So when Jesus says you've got to surpass these guys because they're focused on the external and we need to also include the internal, Jesus is saying none of you, not a single one of you can live this way. You can't even uh, perfectly obey this one commandment, let alone the other nine, let alone the entirety of the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus is saying it's possible, impossible rather. You can't be my follower unless you understand that you can't fulfill the law on your own. Well, let me say that positively. What our Lord is telling us is to be a follower is to know that you just can't do it, that I can't do it, that I couldn't overcome my anger on my own. 
It's to know that the point of the Old Testament law is to drive us to Christ, that we might turn to Christ. But, but let me press pause for a second and, and just speak to you who may be here and you're not sure at all what you believe about Christianity or where you stand with Jesus Christ. And first, I want you to know we're really glad you're here. But I also want to say that when I talk this way about our inadequacy before God, for many of you, it'll sound foreign. And that's because one of the primary tenets in modern secular society is the tenet is this notion that I'm wonderful on the inside. It's been described by secular authors as a fundamental shift from realism to romanticism. From acknowledging one's own inner weaknesses, character flaws, indwelling sin, where you're realistic about yourself, uh, to emphasizing one's inner moral goodness, one's inner strength, one's wonderfulness on the inside, where you have a romantic view of yourself. It's a power of positive thinking. It's a self-esteem movement, and there were good aspects of the self-esteem movement, but it's a self-esteem movement on steroids. It's a prosperity gospel today. It's this fundamental denial of human sin, indwelling sin, that we have divided hearts, that the biggest battle in life is our battle with our heart. Yet when Jesus says your righteousness must surpass He's saying, you and I are not wonderful on the inside. We can't do this on our own. Now, quickly, two applications here. Paul Tripp and others have said this. Uh, your biggest problem in life isn't your spiritual weakness. It's your delusion of inner strength. This notion that I can do it myself. The only person that is surprised or shocked by your brokenness, your selfishness, your different moments of anger really is you. Jesus uses the word surpass here to reveal this inner weakness. Man, I've experienced this in so many different ways. My father died as an alcoholic. I've mentioned this before. But one of the reasons he died as an alcoholic and never could in any way kick his alcoholism was because he refused to deny the problem or he refused to believe the problem. He lived in denial. And what is denial? Denial is avoiding the truth because the truth is too painful to realize, to own. Your problem isn't your weakness. We're all weak. Your problem is your delusion that you can do this on your own. I can't tell you how many marriages I have stepped into, family situations where there's just anger flowing everywhere and each and every person is kind of blaming the other person and no one's willing to say, okay, it's me. I 
And we have these unrealistic views of ourselves. We have these romantic notions of ourselves. And therefore, and this is the second application point, you must die in order to live. You must die to the notion that you are wonderful on the inside. Don't let culture do that to you. As I just said, you have a divided heart. Your biggest battle in life is your battle with yourself. You must not deny, you must die to the notion that your anger is no big deal. That you have the power to change because you don't. And I want to appeal to you because I love you to admit the problem, confess it, talk to others about it, and own it. And that brings us to verse 17 in the beginning where Jesus tells us that we can change, we can lay down our anger, we can overcome our anger through him and only through him. So let's reread verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, others ask this question here, and it's a profound question. How do you fulfill the law? How does a person fulfill the law? And the answer is in two ways. One, you obey it. Or number two, you pay the fine, you pay the penalty when you don't obey it. Uh, so number one, you stop at the red light. Number two, uh, you pay the fine when you run the red light. When Jesus says, I have come to fulfill, he's saying he did both. He fulfills the law in both ways. He perfectly obeyed the law. As Paul says, he knew no sin. He was perfect. He lived a perfect life. He, uh, he was completely innocent. The innocent lamb of God, we are told. But then Jesus went to the cross and paid the penalty for our inability to keep the law. He paid the fine in our place for us that we could have an eternal relationship with God. Jesus, in other words, fulfills the law twice. He obeyed it, he paid the penalty for us. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you know that Jesus is the perfect Moses who not only gave us the law, but fulfilled the law. Uh, he's the true Isaac who wasn't spared but was sacrificed for our sin, our, our anger. He's uh, true, the, the perfect uh, Joshua, who leads us into the promised land, the glory of redemption. Uh, uh, Jesus is the perfection the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system, the, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the, the temple. This is why Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. 
And then we come to the New Testament in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7. And what does Paul say? Paul says, Jesus made himself nothing. Raka. Nothing. So you and I, who should be nobodies for eternity, might become the moment we believe children of the king of kings and somebodies in the kingdom of heaven forever. Now, imagine, I want you to imagine Jesus hanging on the cross. I want you to picture, I want you to meditate on the suffering that he went through for you. I mean, think about the nails, his wrists, the the agony, the pain. I mean, think about one of your kids being in that position. Jesus became a nobody so that you could become a somebody. And we can't obey the law. We can't measure up. We can't do it on our own. But Jesus has come to change you from the inside out. To heal your anger. To make you loving. Look at this quote from Martin Luther King. We will not abandon our righteous efforts nor will we relinquish our responsibility to love. While abhorring segregation, we will love the segregationist. We will meet physical force with spiritual love. We will love you. That's what Jesus offers his children. Do you know that love? Come to Jesus if you haven't received Jesus. If you have, if you've been a follower of Christ for a while, I want you to cling to Jesus, to cling to the gospel. To understand that the way forward is not to focus on what you must do, but what Jesus Christ has always already done. So those that hate you, those that laugh at you, those at school that mock you or wherever, you will love in return. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at what you have done for us. And we confess to you our anger, our indifference, the way we discriminate without even thinking we're discriminating. We ask you to change us by the power of your spirit. Amen.